0: Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. As of this week, we'll be changing this podcast to focus on the international aspects of the coronavirus crisis. There'll be two specific changes. First, the podcast is coming out from behind the FT's paywall, so it'll now be available to subscribers and non-subscribers alike. Second, like many people, I'm currently stuck at home and unable to travel. So my interviews will no longer be conducted face-to-face, instead we'll be interviewing experts around the world down the line from London. This week, I'm talking to the FT's correspondents in Italy and Spain, the two European countries that have so far been hardest hit by the epidemic. I started by talking to Miles Johnson in Rome, and I asked him first simply to tell me about the mood in Italy in the face of this medical and social calamity.
1: I think when the lockdown measures first began, there was certainly quite a large level of apparent solidarity amongst Italians. I think many people will have already seen the sort of social media videos of people singing from their balconies and televised messages from footballers, um, government messages telling them to do the right thing and stay indoors. And I think that does still appear, although it's hard to quantify to be the case, but I think there are also people starting to chafe under the measures, you know, that every day this week, seemingly the measures become stricter. People have been banned from exercising. People have been banned from taking bike rides. In certain regions, they've shortened the supermarket hours. And I think these things start to grate on people. And the uncertainty, the inability to know precisely when these measures are going to be lifted, because the Prime Minister announced that the measures would likely be extended past their original date on the 3rd of April. That,
0: I think, also weighs on people's minds. Is there any sense, though, that Italy is getting a handle on this, that it might be able to bring it under control? The data is
1: noisy, and we have to be cautious about extrapolating trends from only one or two days. But in the last week, we have seen some progress. in There are less dead daily, and the rate of change in new infections is slowing. So this does potentially indicate that the lockdown measures, which experts say will have a lagged effect of maybe two weeks or more, are
0: starting to show up in the numbers. As you sit in Italy and watch the situation unfold in the US, the UK, do you have a sense of deja vu? Absolutely. I
1: spoke with a colleague who'd been in China and they sort of explained the same thing to me. And I had this, this sort of slightly surreal feeling when I was talking to people in the UK, sort of friends, family, over the last two weeks that although a lot of people I spoke to did take it seriously, they couldn't quite... Grasp the fact that there was going to be a full lockdown. And I was telling people, you know, this is extremely likely to happen in London, for example, within a week. And it pretty much almost has. And so, yeah, I have sort of felt like I've been in the future somewhat. And it's very grim because you know exactly what's going to play out in British hospitals. I mean, unless a sort of miracle occurs, it's extremely likely that the horrific scenes that we've seen in hospitals in Lombardy is likely to occur in the UK too. And it's just sort of been this thing on the horizon that you can just see approaching day by day.
0: Yes, and I mean, I think the sense here, and it sounds like it was true in Italy as well, is that events move so fast that people are always a couple of days behind in assimilating what's going on.
1: Absolutely. I also think it's just hard for anyone really to kind of understand how they'll feel when this sort of happens because as you say it happens so quickly it's just surreal if you're in London and you know three weeks ago you were in a pub or in a restaurant or in a cinema and then today you're not meant to be leaving your house it's hard for it to sink in I think people understandably just didn't want to take it that seriously in certain ways until it happened where they are you know you've seen that in everywhere from
0: regular people on the streets to financial markets too. And I suppose one of the things that worries me looking at the situation in Italy is that Italy came into this in a very weak economic situation, very, very high levels of public debt. Can the Italian economy, looking into when this horrible situation is over, do you think it can withstand the blows of this crisis? I
1: mean, as you say, it is quite worrying. Italy has never really recovered from its previous crises. You know, GDP is still not above where it was before the previous financial crisis. This sort of lost capacity in the economy never really got replaced. And so in this instance where you're not just having a downturn, you're having a complete shutdown of the economy, that is worrying. But then on the other hand, maybe we're living in a new paradigm governments here previously have had to be very careful about what they do with their public debts, always making sure that they don't get on the wrong side of the European Commission. And obviously the Stability and Growth Pact has been ripped up, you know, has taken a deadly virus to kill the Stability and Growth Pact. And now the Italian government is spending lots and lots of money. And so the question going forward will be to what extent investors in Italian government debt, which, um, you know, the Italian government obviously need to roll over and need the confidence of, will they care? Are we moving into a period where the old sort of model of um, judging the finances of countries no longer counts? Or will there be a big problem down the road where financial markets suddenly believe that Italian debt to GDP at over 150%, say, is unsustainable?
0: And what, on the political front, is the mood towards the Prime Minister, Mr Conte, who was seen as a kind of transitional figure, I think, even a few weeks ago, Has he had a good crisis? I think it's
1: a very dynamic situation. At the start, it appeared that he was having a bad crisis. When the news of his attempt to lock down the north of Italy, a population of 16 million people leaked, and lots of people ran out of north of Italy, that was seen as a big blunder. But since then, he definitely has displayed a very strong ability to communicate calmly with the Italian people in these sorts of late night addresses, where he spells out the sort of latest measures which the country needs to take. As you say, he was seen as a transitional figure, he has no political party, and he was sort of weak for that reason. Now he is strong, you know, a recent poll, it's hard to tell really how much we should read into these polls, but you know, one showed that seven out of 10 Italians supported his response to the crisis. And so Conte has certainly emerged as a far more credible figure in recent weeks, not just in terms of the crisis response, but also in terms of his calls for European-wide fiscal measures, reforms of the ESM, the European Rescue Fund, calls for joint European bonds to be issued, corona bonds. He's definitely found his voice.
0: And finally, Miles, what of the general political mood in Italy towards the European Union? I mean, you wrote earlier... That there was some sense that Italy had once again been left on its own. As you say, it's a very dynamic situation. But do you have any sense of how that debate's moving?
1: I think there was certainly a sense that not enough was being done by Italy's neighbours to help Italy in a time of need. There was a request by Italy for urgent medical supplies, and that was not answered by anyone in Europe at the time it was made. And instead, China came in and gave masks and respirators and sent some medical staff to Italy. And so that was a problem. But I think other things which created a big issue were the gaffe by Christine Lagarde. The president of the European Central Bank, when she said it was not her job to close spreads, that went down terribly in Italy. That prompted criticism from Conte, the prime minister. It also prompted a sort of very terse late-night statement from Sergio Mattarella, Italy's president, who is effectively a, a political custodian of the Italian constitution. And He didn't name Lagarde, but he very clearly said that someone was causing problems for Italy at his time of need. There is this focus on Europe's response during this crisis, which has definitely improved somewhat as time has gone on. But the other issue is it's shifting the sort of ground that Italian politics is operating on. Italian politics before this crisis was very outward-looking and it was dominated by Salvini attacking Migrants, legal migration into Italy and attacking the European Union because of the regional nature of this crisis in Italy, where, you know, almost 50% of the cases are in Lombardy and in the north of Italy, it's starting to really challenge Italy's national unity. Regional leaders are sort of attacking the central government for not doing enough to help. You know, you have this scramble for medical supplies, which isn't just between countries, but it's also between regions in Italy. And um, it's sort of certainly exacerbating Italy's north-south divide and is repositioning, to a certain extent, the Lega, because once there's no migrants coming in, Salvini's weapons are sort of blunted somewhat, Salvini's visibility has dropped quite sharply during this crisis. And instead, the focus has been a lot more, understandably, on the regional governors in Lombardy and Veneto, who are Lega, who are managing this crisis. And suddenly the agenda fills, it's early days, but it feels that the agenda is shifting back away from Salvini's sort of pan-Italian nationalism back to
0: northern hyper-devolution potentially in the future. That was Miles Johnson in Rome. I then spoke to Dan Dombey, our correspondent in Madrid, and asked him first to describe his life under lockdown. Well, Spain's been under lockdown for about a week
2: now, and it's a very different kind of
0: existence.
2: It's much quieter, we're near a motorway, but now the only traffic you really hear are um, the wail of sirens, and I don't think they're police sirens. Of course, Madrid is definitely the worst affected part of Spain by the coronavirus and it has an elderly population, and uh, a lot of those people need to get to intensive care. So the noise is punctuated by ambulance sirens. But it's when you go outside that you see the difference. You know, in smaller shops, you're only going to have four or five people allowed in the shop at one time. You are allowed to go outside to go and get pharmaceuticals and to buy food, and for some other purposes, but not to do exercise or anything like that and you'll see queues outside smaller shops. And I went to a bigger supermarket just a few days ago, and it was a strange experience, a really very weird experience. Just before the lockdown, there was a real frenzy of panic buying. I remember I went a week ago, and a huge hypermarket had really almost no meat, no chicken, nothing, just stall after stall after stall of empty shelves. When I went a couple of days ago, it was different, though. There was lots of Produce there, there was fantastic seafood and so on, but there were police guarding the entrance to the supermarket to make sure too many people didn't go in. There were security guards in the supermarket itself making sure that people didn't get too close to each other. There were products that were marked off with crime scene tape because their sale is not legal at the moment. You can only sell food and uh, a drink and pharmaceuticals and other products, not gardening products. So the gardening products was kind of masked
0: off with crime scene tape. Dan, before this crisis hit, Spanish politics were very divided. They'd struggled to form a government. Catalonia and the central government were at loggerheads. Have those kinds of tensions now been put on hold? No, it's a pressure cooker. It's being shoved
2: down. I mean, this is a government which is a coalition government. It's the first coalition government in Spain's modern history. It's the first government to include communist ministers for 80 years since the civil war. It's a minority government. It has nowhere near enough seats to command an absolute majority of their congress of deputies. And yet, as soon as they issued this decree that they were going to move to what they call a state of alarm or a state of alert, you suddenly had a transformation from a very weak government to an almost all powerful seeming government where everything is run by the Prime Minister, but under him, a kind of four person commissariat led by the Health Minister, including the Defence Minister, the Interior Minister, and the Transport Minister. And they run things, they run the regional authorities, which are now supposedly their agents. They have powers to requisition and commandeer industry, to make equipment. They've taken over private hospitals. So you've had this shift in power, which is truly astonishing, under this extraordinary situation, which has been going on for a week and will go on for three more weeks, it seems, at least. But, of course, underneath that, you have the same old tensions. And although we had a to sign a unity about a week ago after the Prime Minister had a teleconference with all the regional heads of government, now you're already seeing real complaints in different parts of the country about supplies, about how fast the government's doing in terms of closing down all economic activity other than the essential. Catalonia has really been kicking against the central government for all sorts of ways. It initially wanted to respond to this crisis by separating itself from the rest of Spain. Now we're seeing increasing tensions not just with Catalonia but with Madrid, with Murcia and the South. So although the government has these enormous powers, those tensions that in some ways have been the story of Spain for the last 100, 200 years, those are doing more than simmering under the surface, and at some point they will burst into the open again.
0: So how has Spain's attitude to the European Union been affected by the crisis?
2: Well, I think this works in different ways. The Spanish Prime Minister, Pedro Sánchez, spoke about this a couple of times over the weekend, and he said, look, Spain is a very pro-European country, it's a very pro-European government. But it's clear that Europe has been a bit absent so far. I mean, people are very reassured by what the European Central Bank did last week in trying to kind of ensure that there's more liquidity in the system. But when the King of Spain gave an address to the nation last week, he didn't mention Europe once. And Sanchez said that we need more from Europe, and that this would be a good time for Europe to build on its credentials. What Spain wants, is basically what they call a European Marshall Plan. This is a country that still had, at the beginning of this crisis, 14% unemployment. And given the shape of the Spanish economy, so dependent on tourism, which is dead for the time being, so dependent on the car industry, which is basically stopped right now, so dependent on services, which are barely functioning, The unemployment toll is going to be very, very significant. They've taken measures here for the state to cover 70% of people's salaries if they're temporarily laid off. But they know there's going to be an incredible task to get the economy functioning at anything like normal levels. And so that's why they're looking to Europe for a massive stimulus programme once this is over. And of course, they're looking for euro bonds, mutualised debt. These, of course, are things that northern European countries have been resisting for a very long time. But Spain, Italy, to an extent France, they really want these things. A country like this, which is still limping in some ways, because of the wounds of the crisis 10 years ago, needs a very, very massive response. But because this is a left-wing government, they feel that What they see is the errors of the financial crisis should be avoided. That the stimulus packages during the crisis were too small, austerity came too soon, fiscal orthodoxy triumphed and shouldn't have done, and instead they see this as a real chance of the left for a more expansive state, for a kind of more spending, for a real
0: shift to the left. That was Daniel Dombey in Madrid, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for future editions as we cover this unfolding crisis. For those of you listening to the show for the first time, can I direct you to our back catalogue of podcasts, which will be coming out from behind the paywall. Of recent editions, I'd particularly recommend listening to Adam Tooze on climate change, Shruti Kapila on Hindu nationalism, Nadia Shadlow on her work writing President Trump's National Security Review, and Ian Golden on why the world was so badly prepared for a pandemic. And if you could spare a few moments, we'd love to hear from you on what you think about the show and how it can improve. We're running a survey, which you can find at ft.com slash Rachman survey. You might also like to subscribe to our business newsletter on the coronavirus, a daily briefing on how the epidemic is affecting the markets, global business, our workplaces and daily lives, which is free for the next 30 days. Visit ft.com to sign up for that. And please join us again next week. Just follow the link at ft.com slash RackmanReview, or you can find us in all the usual podcast apps. Hey, it's Danny
2: Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?